Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome back to another episode of the Waiting List Podcast. Our guest today is Carlos Ramirez. I know Carlos first and foremost as an exceptional boyfriend to someone I'm really close to, but um, the main reason that I actually wanted Carlos to come on today is to talk about his watches, Mech Watches. So that's M-E-C. Carlos created M-E-C Watches, so Mech Watches, purely out of passion. And I was really lucky to see the first prototype. Well, now they're in the final one already. But I saw the first prototype when he was in Hong Kong recently. And I honestly have to say... Yeah, it's just fucking cool. And Jack, if you can see it, if you ever get to meet Carlos in the US, you have to see it like in the flesh. So if you guys just take a second, so you either visit the website, mecwatches.com, or you go to that Instagram page at mecwatches, you might find this episode easier to follow when we start to talk about the watch instead of just imagining it, right? Okay. But second reason I wanted Carlos to come on is because he's been quite an inspiration to me in terms of work ethic, general, just direction, outlook in life. Um, Many people that listen to this podcast are all about like self-improvement, finding more purpose in life. So I hope that this episode, you guys can pick up like a thing or two from him. All right. So let's begin. That was an so, incredibly professional intro. You've really right? put the pressure on me now. Because my interest is shit compared to that. That <laughs> no, was like really that... good. Wasn't yeah, that really good? Well, that was really good? Yeah, usually I'm like, so what do I say about this person? But I actually met him. So it's like, it's just real. Right? Why do you sound so surprised? Carlos, we, we're professionals here. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> No, he's like, they're just a bunch uh, of clowns. <laughs> believe me, this is uh, the, the level of ethic and professionalism right here is self-evident. So I'm very, very excited for this. <laughs> okay, so there's so much to unpack. So first, tell us a bit about where you're from, where you grew up, and how you eventually came to New York. Absolutely. As a prelude, I mean, I couldn't be more happy about that lovely intro that you gave me. Um, Very flattered. Thank you so much. Um, I'm originally from Venezuela. I'm from Latin America, uh, born and raised and spent, you know, a big chunk of my life there until I was around 26, 27 um um originally my my original uh, idea of professional career was law i'm a lawyer in my country um and then i decided that i didn't want to do that and also because of you know uh social political reasons i had to move out of uh, out of my country uh into the states i arrived in miami which it became my home for whereabouts of 8 years i live um there in the 305 and you know it really uh teach me a lot about being an immigrant because quick side note uh venezuela uh, un- unlike many other countries in the world uh we have never had a massive exodus as we have had for the last 20 years it is the first time that venezuelans have become immigrants we have never you know, being immigrants. So we don't have that ingrained in our culture as many other uh, places in the world. And that was a little bit of a a learning curve for us. 
uh, because internally we saw each other as competition, you know, and then we started that reset, that mental reset in order for us to start seeing each other as a community and, and in order to leverage out of each other and work um, with each other uh, was a little bit of a learning curve um, as well, you know, polishing my English, my English wasn't great. Uh, it was uh, the third language that I that I picked up. And um, also the the mindset working was extremely different, uh, but I'm very grateful for the opportunity because that makes you be more of a, a worldwide citizen. Um, and then after that, you know, I arrived here in New York City, uh, which I've been calling home for the last four years. And it's a city, you know, as energetic as I feel that I am, is very driven, very oriented, goal oriented, very professional. And people here are not with, without any nonsense uh here people don't take your bullshit they're here to make a deal they're here to make things work out and if not listen man i don't have the time let me get out of here uh so that is something that i really appreciate and really make me uh dream about the possibility the idea on coming about with with this little puppy that i have right here which is the make one but more on that a little bit later <laughs> bye i have okay. a question questions my first question is um as probably people in the podcast know i changed professions as well so like i always find it interesting to feel like what goes into the mindset of somebody that you know goes into one of these really sought after professions like a lawyer you know and then decide not to do it like how was that how hard was that decision to not become a lawyer and uh yeah actually going through with it that's a very good question. And I can uh, respond to that as a twofold, because on the personal side, it was the easiest decision that I ever made, to be quite honest, because I'm an, I'm, I am a, an extremely rational, cold thinking, logic person. I don't get emotional about things. Uh, of course, I do have a heart. I do have emotions. I'm, I'm not a robot. But regarding this type of stuff that they're going to mold uh your life but you can easily make a, a quick decision especially when you're younger it wasn't really so much of an impact to me it was an impact to my parents um i don't know if you guys know this but asian culture and latin american culture are extremely similar we are very family focused family centric and for us on, on like uh the majority of the views in the western world um, Americans or Europeans, uh, what your, your what your parents think about your life has a significant depth and power. So when I decided not to do that and confront my father, which he has one of the most famous lawyers in Venezuela, I come from that is our lineage. My grandfather was a lawyer. He is a lawyer, um, albeit extremely um, public uh, and whatnot. For him, was a little bit of a hit. He tried to plead with me. Maybe you just need a little bit more time. Maybe you just need to reconsider and maybe go to a different arena like Spain. And I, I, I actually did that. I kind of like explore different uh, venues in order for me to reconsider to doing a convalidation of 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 the career. Maybe going to Spain and practice there, which is. Um, the same system in the sense of it is you have two legal systems civil law and common law and uh civil law is the one that reigns in in, in places that is uh, they're latin based um but here in the states is uh common law which is similar in the uk and um 
I decided not to do that just because I explained my father that uh, at this point in my life, uh, with this age that I have and already a career that I have uh, built up and I've been quite successful at it, it makes no sense for me to reinvest five to six years of my life going back to school putting my life on a complete stop, becoming a, a student back again. Um, so he kind of understood with a little bit of a side eye in the sense that, oh, well, but whatever. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you could do it if you wanted to, right? That type of attitude, um, which in, in, in retrospective, back in the day when I was younger, I saw it as a extremely toxic, but to be quite honest, um, at least the generation of my father. My my father is seventy seven. He's he will be what is called a baby boomer. Um, that generation don't they don't really see life the same way that we do because their reality on financials, uh, family, society, uh, work concept and availability. They didn't have access to many of the things that we have today. When I'm trying to get a you know if that was my case because I never been an employee, but um. If I were to try to look for a job, a regular job, I'm not just competing with the people that live in the same zip code or area or even city that I live in. I'm competing with people internationally that are willing to go remotely or relocate. So they didn't have that, really. So their life view is extremely different. So which is one of the things that I understood is that we need to be a little bit more uh, patient with them in that sense and for that not to hit me that much. And number two, you just need to do what it works for you, man. Like in my case, I've been a, an entrepreneur my entire life. I saw that business development and finance were my thing. Um, even though that very early on in my career, I'm like, I'm not really good with math, but I'm like, I don't really need to go into heavy calculations to understand the debt or EBITDA or, or you know, plus of profit on a PNL of a sheet list um, of a company that you don't really need to be a mathematical genius to understand this type of stuff. But those were the things that I felt that really connected with me. And I said, you know what? This is going to be my life. I'm going to be uh, moving around. I love to talk to people. I love to meet with people. I love to be also creative. And this was the path that allowed me to do that. So it's more about finding yourself, understanding what is it that you want and that intersection between what is it that you're really good at, but what is it that you really love? Because it, it cannot be either or. It needs to be that right in that middle section for that to actually work. Mm. Okay. Very I got okay. a second question, yeah. which Go was, ahead. yeah, you mentioned about this immigrant thing. You know, yes. it's like this generation's, and, and like, when I was born, that's all I've known, being an immigrant. So I've never been in a in a place, well, when as soon as I, you know, I guess left the hospital, everyone around me was Caucasian nobody was there Asian, right so and you know something that i guess that's inherent with chinese culture is you know we do tend to travel around the world looking mm. for better opportunities it's almost inherent in in the the culture you know there are certain provinces even in china where they leave you know the whole pro you know it's it's a thing to do mm. um and i remember you know that the chinese community albeit small was very tight knit, you know, they were looking out for each other. So it comes as a real surprise to hear you say like, you're in competition with each other. And I can definitely see the logic in a community coming together, which is small, 
to aggregate resources and to help each other look out for each other. But I can't see the logic with why you become competitors. What is the thinking behind that? So the way that I can dissect that, because this is more of a, you know, social, you know, sociological, you know, um, effect, I w- I'm going to say. Um, the way that I see it is when you don't really have this um, culture of people of your own nationality going around and having these experiences, because uh, most of the time, these experiences are also uh, brought to you by your own family and friends, people that are already out and they already tell you about the harsh living situation that it is to be an immigrant or how good it is once you settle and all these um stories that now we know because now we have been out of the country for you know many of my compatriots for 20 years me you know close to 13 years now um but when you are in a society that there are a couple of things here to to unpack number one i come from a country i come from a culture that we are not on a unison the way that we look like in, if you go to any other country in the world that is more homogeneous, then you see that genetically everyone has similarities. If you go to China, people look alike. If you go to Australia, people kind of look alike and so on and so forth. But when you go to a, to a place like Latin America in general, especially Venezuela, we have had the biggest you know, migration uh, during the world times. I'm talking about from all the way from 1910s to 1960s and 70s. We have a lot of migrants from any part of the world. So we are very mixed. Even myself, I'm mixed. I'm mixed between native uh, Venezuelan and Spaniard. So we don't, that lack of being homogeneous also goes against forming that level of community once you leave the country. That is a thing. Um, And number one, and number two, the social economical status in Latin America plays a more significant role than many other countries. Over there, it really depends on where you went to school, where do you live, you know, what was the access that you had, and that is the community that you're going to surround yourself, not just in the country, but once you leave. And one of the things that people don't understand is that community is community. If you're from that place and anyone can give you a hand or you can give a hand to one of those people, that's when you start being more cohesive and i think that that is uh, potentially or hopefully for me uh the future of of the people from venezuela and i think that we're starting to see that but the way that you see people as competition is because before that massive exodus and migration out of out of the people of the country um we all used to travel venezuela used to be the richest country in in the sector in the area in latin america because of all reserve and whatnot so anyone that you see outside oh you're trying to look for the same as me but we're all going to try to be successful get riches and go back to the homeland that was always the idea you went out you went to mit harvard yale and you know ivy league schools of those sorts you gather as much knowledge and um, good connections as possible, then you will go back and try to meet that. So because of that mindset that has been ancestral, that's why a lot of people saw each other as competition instead of understanding, man, there's there's no 
home to go back to. So we need to all pack together and make this work if we really want to be a solid tight community that we're going to rise. But, you know, maybe we were a little bit more individualistic. Mm. Hmm. I actually have a question for later on, but since you're talking about your background, I just want to ask it anyways. So you're a Latino. What does it actually mean for you to be a Latino and now having your own watch brand? Is this even even something that crossed your mind or are you just like, okay, I don't really care about my race. It's just, I'm just doing what I like to do. I think that the race, very good question. I think that the race comes on the second degree of, of the multiple layer cake that a venture like this could be. Uh, it does play a role, uh, undoubtedly. Now, um, I think that the number one thing is uh, beforehand, I'm a collector. I'm a lover of watches. I'm a lover of cars. I love art. I love architecture. Um, and and for me, that has no color. That has no face. That has no nationality, no language. That is just an, an interpretation of what we love. And that's why we see that watches, uh, we can all appreciate them. If I'm talking, I'm speaking Spanish or French or Cantonese or, or Mandarin, it doesn't matter, right? We all have an appreciation for this. Um, and, and it came about in a very strange way because I never thought that I was gonna get into this venture. Uh, many times I was asked because I'm a big nerd, as you can tell from <laughs> the way that I talk. I'm a big nerd. I like to read, I like to study, I like to be very immersed into the things that I do. Um, and for me, it's like either go go big or go home type of situation. So I decided to go very deep into the watch collecting and, and, and knowledge and reading books from George Daniels and understanding the mind of uh, Francois Pochon, which is one of my heroes and mentors. Um, and there was one significant conversation that I had with Max Busser. He invited me for dinner, he, him and his team, Jean-Marc. Uh, in Miami, we had dinner um, one night with some other collectors. And in that communication, uh, back in the day, I was consulting different watch brands, right? That was the, the most close type of interaction that I had with watch brands besides buying them. It was that I was getting the gig as a consultant for them for business development, right? And my very dream was to work with Francois Pochorn, and I did it. I got a contract with them, and I was helping them to, to develop a couple of things. Um, and Max, having past experience working with Francois Pochorn on the Opus uh, on Harry Winston, um, he was telling me, so, Carlos, you need to tell me everything. How was your experience with Francois Paul? Because he's definitely, you know, a, a significant character and he has a very strong personality type and whatnot. And I said to him, listen, everyone told me to be like scared about the guy. He's, he was like big, angry wolf. And to me, he was the nicest person. We we have a, we had, we shared a drink. We, sh we shared jokes. We laughed together. We worked uh, he really liked the fact that I, I'm not a bullshit guy. I told things straight up uh, that even people that work in the company were so scared. Like, are you fucking crazy? How are you going to talk to Francois Paul like that? And Francois Paul told me that he really appreciated it because he doesn't like sugarcoating stuff. 
And, and he was starting to ask me, what is it that you think about the brand? What would you do different? What, what do you think about the design? What do you think about the, the pursuit of this mechanical excellence and whatnot? And I was giving him my, my, you know, my honest opinions and, and, and views about this until he stopped and he's like, Carlos, you should make your own brand. And I'm like, what? Um, yeah, you should definitely do because the things that you're saying are very on point. Number one, number two, I think that you have a very refreshing uh, personality and way of of taking these type of things that I think that it will be good for the market. It will be good for people. And number three, I I can tell that you have a chip on your shoulder that you you have something to demonstrate. So what better way than going that direction? So. I, I cannot like brush it off because I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. I'm not going to do that. That, that is um, the more that, you know, the more that you understand how daunting that task is. So I'm like, I, I don't really think that I'm going to be able to do this until I stop being a little bitch. And I said, you know what, let me, let me try to make this work. I make a couple phone calls and yeah. one, one of the people that I talked to, uh, which is one of my partners today, he is, uh, the only American-born watchmaker working currently for François Paul Jean. And he comes from Vacheron Constantin and some other brands. Mm -hmm. I met him when he was a, a master watchmaker at Vacheron uh, because that is one of the brands that I collect. And I said, Judd, um, I'm planning to do this, but uh, and I wanted to know if I, can, if I can count you in the project. But there are three things that I want to make extremely clear. First of all, I'm doing this with or without you guys. Like I'm doing this, like I already make the determination that I'm going to do this. How the fuck am I going to do this without being a watchmaker? I'll figure it out, but I'll do it. Second, I'm not doing this with the intention of making money. I just want to do this to make a watch that I can literally not do not buy. I cannot buy. I, even if, if I have a backpack full of money, I cannot go out there and buy a 39 modern, 39 millimeter modern jump power. I, uh, I can't. I, I don't. I don't see it. And third, um, this is going to be no compromises. I don't want to cut corners, uh, even if if it takes spending a good amount of money. So they all say yes. They're like, okay, we wouldn't do it any other way. Um, and that's how Meg started uh, with that crazy idea. Yeah, I I actually want to know. Um, so if FPJ came to me and was like, you have to do this. Literally, the next thing I would do is just I would be stuck because I'll be like, okay, he's right. But then, so what was the thought process? Did you go, let me start by making a list of things that do not exist that I'm looking for? Or do you just go by, you know what, let's just start sketch, uh, like sketching? Immediately. Wait, can I, can I say something yeah. before yeah. that? Because yeah. I have a question for one step before that, which is okay. before you thought about like the sketching and whatnot, you mentioned how when he and I, you had the talk um, and you brushed it off, his mm -hmm. suggestion. And then how, um, how did you transition from brushing it off and be like, oh, that's never going to happen? to telling your master watchmaker slash partner, hey, I'm going to do this with or without you? And then answer Long Long's question about the sketches. Fair, fair enough. Good question. Well, it took about two years of incubation of the idea. Like, I like to say that Max Husser was the inception artist of the idea in my head that became 
an obsessive compulsive idea in my head that I went through many times. Uh, and I said, no, forget about it. I painted different scenarios and I said, oh, this is going to be so hard. But then one day, uh, and this is beginning pre-pandemic, uh, February of 2020, um, I said to myself, I started, you know, I always play with the idea. I toy with the idea back and forth until I said, okay, what is it that a brand really needs? It needs a solid design um, aesthetic that I, what I would like to do is something that, you know, it has never been seen, uh, something very different. Uh, it needs number one, you know, number two, passion, because passion is going to be the main driver of this. If I don't really have the passion for it, uh, even if I have the money, even if, if I have all the contacts in the world, that's not going to move uh, anything. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm extremely passionate. So I do have that. I need to have the capital. Thank God I have that. Um, and I need to have the people, the team, the contacts. And I'm like, well, those I know that I can get because I know a lot of people in the industry, but that will, that will the inception and that will be the team, the people that are with me into this partnership. And that was the moment that I'm like, well, I always wanted to have, because I had this idea, I've been looking for the freaking watch, the jump hour uh, for the longest time. And I only could find vintage 36 millimeters from Vashon and, and maybe some, some other brands. Uh, absolutely beautiful, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted because I have a big wrist, so I need a bigger watch. And that's the moment that I'm like, once I make a decision, I mean, you need to literally put a shotgun in my head in order for me to stop because if not like that, I'm not going to stop. I'm, I'm not like a tractor. Um, and going to, to Long Long's question, um, yeah, immediately I sit down with my other partner, Eric, and he's a, he's a professional in the art industry, designer and in and, and, and advertising and whatnot. And I asked him, uh, could you help me to translate this idea that I put on a piece of paper because I draw like a five-year-old, like not, not ideal, um, into something more aesthetic in the computer. And he, that's what he did. And I'm like, that's exactly what I want. You know, minus more like details can be worked at, worked around, but that's exactly what I want. And that's how the, the entire plan uh, started. Can you just uh, bring us through? Um, I know a lot of the inspiration is from uh, New York and Miami, but mm. then just like, um, how did you come up with the smoke dial, the hands, the font? Uh, so can you just roughly describe your inspiration for each thing? Sure. Um, so the, the main artistic inspiration is, is drawn from Art Deco. And the interesting thing about Art Deco is that a lot of people think that it's a design style or, or architectural style, and it's, it's not really. Art Deco is a design period that started at the end of the 20s and all the way close to end of the 40s, beginning of the 50s um, with modernism. And it's a, it's a evolution of, of Art Nouveau. Art Nouveau was very fluid, very inspiring nature. And Art Deco was the complete opposite. Is you know, more straight lines, more um, you know, brutalist in a, in a sense. And 
there's a beauty in that. There's a beauty on, on, on being more simplistic, not so, you know, flamboyant in a sense. And why that idea came along, it was very interesting because I didn't know that I wanted to do something Art Deco, even though that I love Art Deco. But it was because um, trying to find out the type of design that I wanted for the watch, that we wanted for the watch, I thought, well, what is it that the two cities that I can call home are connected by? And Miami and New York are the two current, and for now, forever, capitals of the world in Art Deco architecture. And they're both very different in the sense that they both have their own very specific Art Deco style. Um, because it's very it's very curious that Art Deco comes from Paris, but there's no Art Deco architecture left in Paris. Um, and there are some other variants. There's there's a very significant variant. I don't want to spoil any, any details right now, but there's a very important variant that I'm working on right now into our, one of our next watches that is uh, Art Deco, the Chinois variant that is starting in Hong Kong. Uh, that we're going to be working on that very soon, but more on that later. Um, I decided to connect the, the two styles for Miami and New York. And then in the dial, you can see the entire straight, strong lines uh, from New York. And uh, you can see it on the typography. You can see it on the minute hand. You can see it on the cutouts on the seconds disc and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And even on the Luminova, because there there's a, like triple layer on the concept of the design um for many of you guys that are only hearing us i recommend you guys to go to makewatches.com or to follow us on instagram at watches you guys are going to see what i'm explaining but if you guys see right here uh you guys are going to be able to it see the luminova so and, the, and the circle on the top right and the luminova is a reinterpretation that i wanted to do of the very famous Scott Fitzgerald Great Gatsby story that uh, Mr. Gatsby will stand in the port in his porch and see at the very end the green light that signifies that his lover, his lost love, is on that other side. So that is my reinterpretation of that mint color that we have on the Luminova on the on the dial, and it's actually like a little circle at the very top. So. Uh, I want it to be very significant. And then on the back, uh, we see the Miami style of the Art Deco. It's like double got drawn. Uh, the midbridge is completely like a cascade and whatnot. And that is more significant of the Miami style of the Art Deco that you guys can see on any building on South Beach on the Ocean Drive, that very typical cascade from Miami. So that's a little bit of the inspiration of where that came from. Um, you know, you keep mentioning, I will, at least in your other interviews, you keep emphasizing this is not a watch for someone's uh, first watch. Like, why do you keep saying that? Why does it have to be for someone that has collected for a bit? That's a very good question. Um, I will never be opposed for a person that is their first watch to get one of these watches. But from my experience collecting because that's the interesting thing uh i didn't start it as a watch businessman i started as a watch collector as a consumer and one of the things that we all know uh if, even if you are only a year into your journey 
or 10 or 20 or 30 years into your collecting journey, one of the things that we all understand as collectors is that your taste changes, it evolves, it matures. And this is not only with watches, this is with everything, the way that we dress, the things that we eat. Uh, when we like wine, we start getting more into wine. And then at the beginning, we're okay with a yellow food that costs nine, nine bucks the bottle. And then we like a Petrus bottle that is $3,000, right? Like it, it all depends on the level of appreciation that you have for what you're doing. And mm -hmm. the appreciation will be the only factor in my humble opinion, that it will be able to validate the decision that you are getting something that you can do with your phone or you can do with a watch that it will cost you $200 into a watch that passes $20,000, $100,000. There's no um, real explanation on why you're doing that because rationale is not there but that's the, the beauty of our art and collecting there's no real rationale until you really know until you understand that the entire uh exhaust system of a ferrari f40 is made of a titanium that capristo made and that is one of the reasons why that car sounds the way that it sounds and why that is a four million dollar car instead mm -hmm. of going and buying Testarossa that you can buy for $140,000. That's a V12. The other one is a V8. What the hell is going on? Well, mm -hmm. you need to be in the know for you to understand and, and, and having the validation for yourself that that is a good buy. So understanding that uh, a lot of people that are first-time buyers or are very young in their journey of uh, watch collecting, they will say, well, why am I going to spend... $21,500 into a watch that only tells the time and, and is from a brand that nobody knows, from a guy that nobody knows. And immediately when, and, and someone asked me that fairly recently, and this is a guy that, that is a, a dealer of vintage, uh, but very young guy. And I said, well, immediately I can tell, number one, that you are not my customer. Um, from what you're telling me. And number two is the fact that you don't really get it. The fact of getting it is, and, and that's when it comes into place, the fact that you're already maturing to your collecting journey and you know a lot about uh, the appreciation of design and mechanics and watchmaking, et cetera, is the fact that once you have had from a Casio all the way up to potentially a Richard Mille, Gruber 4C, a, any kind of AP, et cetera, uh, you understand and you have seen anything under the sun. You understand materials. You understand how hard it is to make a sapphire hand, a sapphire minute hand like this, that it takes 17 hours of labor because it needs to be hand cut because sapphire is a very strong material. So once you put it into a machine that vibrates, it will break. So you need to be able to hand cut it. Um, when you start appreciating all this stuff, it's like appreciating art. Someone that sees a Pollock and understand that a Pollock costs $30 million and it's a bunch of splashes and, and lines that make no sense. I think that, that that is part of the conversation, understanding those things before you can put the logic on spending X amount of money into a watch that actually the people that know about this type of stuff, like us here in the conversation, many others that might be hearing, um, they will say, well, that is a watch that objectively 
could cost forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. But this guy is crazy, so he decided to sell it for that. I see it like a hamburger. Why? I see it like eating like a hamburger at McDonald's. Like when you eat a McDonald's, like everyone's eating McDonald's, and you eat a hamburger, and you you know you can go up to a Shake Shack, right? And a Shake Shack is a better burger, but you know, not everybody will be willing to pay for a Shake Shack burger because you know a lot of people do think it's not worth the money, right? Indeed. But, but then, like the cheese is different, the patty is different, the even the bread's different. You know, Correct. even the way they balance the flavors is different. Like, I think it's worth it. <laughs> right? And you and you understand the value behind that, but there are also a lot of pitfalls into that trying to piggyback on that example that you just gave and then if you go and try one of the gordon ramsay's restaurants uh, one of his burgers are absolutely fantastic but then and then you spend i don't know 30 dollars in a burger which is absolutely bananas at least here in the states um but it's it is absolutely worth it and fantastic but then you have a hundred dollar burger from salt base freaking restaurant that the guy puts gold leaves on, on the outside and and that is ridiculous i will slap the living shit out of someone that goes and spends a hundred dollars in that piece of crap of a burger and that also happens in watchmaking so that's why there's a lot of people that don't really understand um certain prices or they think that everything is fake or everything is you know a myth or or a, a, a big cloud of smoke um, and that I, I believe that there's the reasoning why a lot of people get scared about certain independents or about certain brands that they don't really know much about because you have, I don't want to mention, you know, names here, but you have many brands that, and you guys know who I'm talking about and what brands I'm talking about, that they are charging stupid money for things that are not worth it. There are base ETA movements that are kind of like, decorated a little bit different and where's the value on that it's just because a rapper put it on because this guy that appeared in this movie i'm sorry what the fuck does that actor knows anything about watchmaking get the fuck out of here but hey there's everything for everyone okay i i got a question right like yeah we're talking about these mac watches where does the name mac even come from the name good question so it's um is it also has um or I like to create a, a story behind it because it's very simple. It's that the the three initials of the founders um that we arranged them, we arranged them in order to make it sound nice, right? Um but at the same time it sounds mechanical, so I kind of like the the idea of calling calling it mech. And also because the company that we instated is microengineering company. So it works on those three levels, but the most simple and real answer is the three initials of the founders. I want to okay. talk about you as a collector, because I know you have a few very interesting pieces, uh, one of which would be a Sam and Dal Van Cleef. So you kind of seem to be looking for pieces, which I would just say like, you won't see on the streets, right? Um, where Indeed. do you find these pieces and how do you decide what to buy next and like which direction to collect? I love that question because it really gets into the mindset of a little bit, that would explain a little bit of who I am and how is it that I think, right? Um, 
And the fact is that I always like the things that are the most odd and underappreciated. But at the same time, I know um, I hate the term being visionary. I think that that's overdone. But I do have a sense of good sniff test that I can tell when something is objectively good and interesting. It has objective value into, into our hobby, right? So that's that's one part of the question. The other one is just straight out, straight out dumb luck that I stumble upon these pieces because I like to always check Chrono 24. I always like to go, every time that I travel everywhere, I like to go and see um, secondhand dealers or people selling watches or whatever it is to see what's going on in the market because that's also a very good uh, data uh you know, service that I'm providing to myself to understand the market and, and, and the conditions of it. But going back to that, uh, I, I just see different things. And for example, that uh, Monsieur Pels that I found, I found that in Chrono 24, all the all of a sudden it pop up. I saw it the very same day that this guy posted. That's why I say it's dumb luck at the, at the end of the day. And I'm like, wait a second, what the hell is this? I Number one, I never seen one of these watches with a salmon dial because Bankleaf doesn't really do salmon dials. Immediately that, you know, popped into my head. But again, a regular uh, common visitor that sees the watch, number one, who's really looking on Chrono 24 for Bankleaf watches? Not a lot of people, number one. Number two, um... In order for you to understand how rare that is, you need to also be in the know. You need to be a little bit of a nerd, reading a, bon a bunch of different places and, and try to understand different brands. I like to go everywhere. I enter even to the Hublot uh, boutique and see what they have, go out, wash my hands, continue my day. Um, but once I saw that watch and I saw the, the numbers in the bag and I saw that he had an HH numeral reference, mm -hmm. I'm like, this is something objectively special and rare. Mm -hmm. I sit down with the owner. I talk to him. This person has no clue what the guy has in his hands. And I took it away from him from a stupid amount. I, I pay nothing for the watch. Mm -hmm. And once I do my research, once I have it, I understand that this is a watch that it was a commemoration of 100 years of Van Cleve in 2006. And they only offered this watch to their uh, team, the team members, people that work at Van Cleve. That, albeit that, if you guys may know, the big majority of people that work at Bankleaf tend to be women, not mm -hmm. men. This is a fairly large watch at 40 millimeters, which is not the typical thing that Bankleaf does. Big locks, you know, big stands, automatic uh, movement, beautiful finishing and whatnot. But it was, in my idea, it's like, well, back in the day, in the early mid 2000s, it wasn't very in vogue for women to start wearing bigger watches like it is today. Today mm -hmm. is absolutely fine. Back in the day, that wasn't really a thing. Um, so me making a mental math, I'm like, let's say that out of the 200 people working at Van Cleef, only a ratio of 10%, and I think that I'm being extremely 
uh, generous with that idea are men, 20 people. Out of those 20 people, let's take out maybe a security guard or a guy that only helps to move things around, whatnot, that might not have been interested in the piece. Mm-hmm. Let's say that out of those, half of them got the watch. It is so insane to think that maybe between 10 and 15 of these watches were actually sold and put out there. And this is a guy that used to work at McCliff, a dude, hold the watch, got a bunch of straps, got, got the whole set, never used the watch and said, you know what? I'm not doing anything with this. This is not a Rolex. This is not a Cartier. Let me let it go. <clears throat> it is something very rare. So... That's my my way of going to collecting. I started collecting Vacheron about 10 years ago when everyone was like, why are you getting an overseas? That's so, that's stupid. Get a, a Royal Oak, get a, a Nautilus. And I said, dude, objectively speaking, this is a better watch because they all use the same base movement. We're talking about a Ferrari Piquet complication of, of chronograph. But the difference is, is that Vacheron was the only one taking the time into making their own complication, the big date on the dial. And they refined the Ferrari Piquet, making a better uh, watch because it's anti-magnetic, which uh, on the other brands is not. It is 150 meter water system, which in the other brands is not. It's only 80 meters. And shock resistance. So objectively it's a better watch and the market decided that that was correct and decided to grant me um the right of that many years later but i never wanted the watch because of those reasons oh i'm gonna be rich in 10 years that is not the case i i have those watches i will never sell these watches it's only because i like to be right i'm that petty <laughs> i like to get things that i know that are very cool that in, they might go up in value uh mm-hmm. but they're i'm gonna keep them because it's part of my collection and i want to give it to my children the day that i have one okay final question well you know this podcast is called the waiting list podcast right so i am yep. dying to hear feedback from the audience after this episode's released you came to Hong Kong recently. I know you went to browse around, looked at different shops, and then you went to Cartier Hong Kong. So can you share the story about how the salespeople with the calculator and the prices and then how you eventually got offered just two pieces? I think what everyone wants to know, given that I think most people that have been shopping in Hong Kong has like have just had really bad experiences. Like, how did the conversation go and how did you walk away with two pieces? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, the experience was absolutely fantastic. Um, I think that I, I've heard those stories. I've heard the stories that for a lot of people have hasn't been not even remotely similar to what it was to me. But long story short, what I can tell you is I did take my time, same as, you know, I, I was explaining before. And I did walk around. I did try to, you know, find different watches, deals and whatnot. But one of the things that really shocked me is the fact that everywhere that I went, and this is not common in any other place of the world that I've been trying to find, look for watches, is that people immediately take their calculator out. They see a watch, they tell you the price, and they immediately input a, a discount. And they're like, I can give you this. And I'm like, yeah. normally what you expect or or the type of treatment that you get in the States, for example, 
sit down. What's your name? What do you do? What are you wearing? Let me know a little bit more about you. Would you like some coffee? And then at the end of the day, they're going to tell you, oh, so lovely to meet you, but we don't have any watches. Shoot. Um, and, and it's very frustrating because they do this entire parade of stuff. And at the end of the day, you end up being uh, empty handed. Um, but here it was very different because everyone had the stock. Everyone had. And I, again, dumb luck. I arrived to Hong Kong in the moment that China is still not open. Hong Kong is the hub of watches for Asia, but more in particular to China. So these people are sitting on an inventory that China is one of the most important markets in the world for watches that they don't know what to do with. And I'm like, well, maybe I run with luck. But I decided to go with the, you know, on the place that I felt the most comfortable with. And I entered to one of these ADs, beautiful people, beautiful place. And um, uh, on TSD, just a little note. And this person immediately was like trying to ask me, what is it that you, what you wear? What is it that you collect? What is it that you're looking for? And I said to her, very plain and clear. I do not collect Cartier. I think that Cartier is beautiful, mostly for the design. But to be quite honest, I'm more of a mechanical guy. I need to understand what is what is the type of mechanism that you guys are using, la, 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 la. But that being said, I think that the entire Privet collection is absolutely gorgeous. And if I decided to jump into, into buying Cartier and start collecting Cartier, it will be through the Privet collection. But, you know, it's difficult to find them. She's like, okay, uh, are you interested in one? And I'm like, I'm interested in all of them. Like, just let me know. She tells me, well, you know what, Carlos, I cannot promise you anything, but we, for, I don't know, luck again, uh, Faith, um, Faith decided that they're going to have Cartier Hong Kong decided to have an event, a private event. Um, and, and they invited me. They invited me to the event. Let's go there. Let's talk. Let's, you know, see what is it that we have. And once we went to the event, the beautiful um, exhibition, I'm assuming that you guys uh, check, that, check that out. Um, at the end, they invited me to a, a room. They have drinks. They have very nice sitting, whatnot. And they're like, okay, Carlos, out of the pieces that you told me, what is it that you would like to see? I'm like, okay. Uh, one of the pieces that I would absolutely love to have initially which is one of my favorites from Cartier is the Centre, the, the Rose Gold Centre. And they're like, okay, they brought the watch. I tried the watch. I'm like, this is absolutely gorgeous, blah, blah, blah. And then they also brought the Chinois, which is the, you know, one of the newest mm -hmm. versions of, of the Privet collection. Mm -hmm. uh, which metal? I'm like, well, I mean, Rose Gold is, is the one that I like the most. Mm -hmm. Try it on, la, la, la. Okay, will you like the, the Chinois? Yes. Okay, let me talk to the manager. They speak with the person of Cartier. She's right there. Uh, yes, you are accepted. We're going to allocate a piece for you. Okay, fantastic. That's great. Uh, can I pay for it right now? Maybe later I can put it on. Oh, no. We don't have the inventory right now. The watch is going to be arriving by the end of December. We, we're talking that we are in the mid-November mid back in the day um, last year. And I'm like, well, uh, I mean, I, I don't live here. I need the watch for me to, to go, right? And, and I also want to wear it because... Uh, purposely, I wanted to get the watch because it was my birthday, like a couple of days after that event uh, as my own gift. And she says, well, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that. You're going to have to wait. Oh, it breaks my heart. You guys need to compensate me for this. 
uh, let me talk to my manager. She goes, comes back. What else would you like? I'm like, I would like to get this on track. Okay, you're accepted. You can take this on track as well. I'm like, <laughs> so all this is happening. I'm like, this is insane. I got a glitch in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was very interesting because even in that setting, it was always as well with the calculator showing me the prices, mm-hmm. telling me this, telling me that. And out of out of pieces are very difficult to find, but apparently I someone like me, you know, mm-hmm. someone really mm-hmm. said, this is the type of person that we want to have as, as a collector. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's just luck that we have the inventory. Once after that, we went to the store, pay for the watch, put my watch on the centre. I need to go to Hong Kong right now to pick up the, the Chinois. And that's pretty much the story. And that really, you know, Hook me into the brand, hook me into the ID, and I'm gonna keep buying watches from this lady because of how they treat me, and it was so easy to do everything. Yeah, I just I always think just one good experience, and then that's it. You're hooked on the brand, and the Indeed. one yeah, one bad experience, you're off the brand. <laughs> exactly, which which yeah. unfortunately is happening a lot, and yeah. a lot of brands once they become of a certain status of people trying to look for them, they start mm-hmm. becoming more cocky. They start to to come more, uh, to become more um, disingenuous and and just brushing off people. And for me, yeah. listen, this is a hobby that is for our own entertainment. Um, exactly how I started the conversation with you guys, a watch is just a piece of art that we put on and, you know, very cool that it, it tells time and mm-hmm. some will tell time better than others or in a different way or with more precision and whatnot. But at the end of the day, that is something that we can do with our phones that we used to work and it costs really nothing. Right. So mm-hmm. it has to be about the experience. It has to be about making it fun, making it mm-hmm. nice uh, for all of us, because let's be honest, we're putting a lot of money into it is is a pretty penny that we're putting into it. So the least that we can expect from brands is to treat us with respect and with some sort of kindness. And that was the other motivation that I had into creating my own brand that I wasn't very happy on how many brands were treating people. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. one of of the prerequisites for me to sell you a watch is that I need to meet you either Mm -hmm. over a phone call, a FaceTime call, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. or in person. Because Mm -hmm. if I don't, know who you are if i don't know about your collection if i don't if i don't like you i need to legitimately be this is a person this is a guy or a girl that i legitimately would like to sit down and get a couple of drinks and just shoot the shit and have a great time and then i feel comfortable selling one of my watches because thank god i'm, I'm in that position that for me this is you know a passion project this is not my nine to five this is not what i do for a living so i can think in a different way and i wish that many other brands will think that way too yeah hope so all right we can now move on to the reverse around so questions questions from me to you guys fantastic um I wanted to know, and this is an open-ended question for all of you, because okay. this is something that really shocked me from collectors in Hong Kong. I met a bunch of people over there. I had the opportunity of meeting uh, different collectors, uh, people originally from Hong Kong, expats, etc. cetera. Um, why is it such a huge difference on how people in Hong Kong, the market in Hong Kong, sees brands 
established brands versus independents. I didn't see the level of impact that independents have had in the world, in the States and some other parts in the world, in Hong Kong, being a place that is so rooted in watch collecting. Why is it that they haven't thrived in a place like Hong Kong? All right, I'll I'll go first because I probably have the least um, factual answer. It's just from observation. I think because Hong Kong generally the population struggles financially, even though they do make a lot, the cost of living is just so high. So everyone generally, generally again, um, is looking at watches as an asset. Um, I understand what you mean, as in it's a very mature market. Everyone loves watches. Everyone has one. But even if you compare it to Singapore, I think Singapore is like ahead of the curve. And even Japan, in terms of uh, appreciating more like smaller brands and newer brands. And this isn't just watches. It's like alcohol. Uh, it's fashion. And French, uh, even F&B. Just, you can tell other countries like Singapore and Japan are definitely more open. So in that sense, I, I think a lot of Hong Kong people are like, yeah, it's not going to keep its value. So I'll pass. Interesting. Yeah. What about you guys? Yeah, uh, I agree with that pretty much. Um, I think, yeah, you know, you have to look, look a bit deeper as well and look at the culture of Hong Kong people, uh, why they have that mentality. And it's because, you know, Hong Kong has essentially been a gateway to China or, um, it doesn't have much of its natural resources or anything like that. And, uh, you know, it's mainly been importing stuff in and then just on the other hand, selling it off, you know, getting it in and selling it off literally just one hand to the other. And so the, the very generalized way of saying it, the mentality is a lot to do with like making quick money. Right. So mm. I don't think they hold on to things, you know, with the intention of, holding it on for the length of time uh, other cultures would they look to liquidate eventually and move on to the next thing quickly so uh, it is important that the watch holds its value which means it's very difficult to move away from Haddock, RM um, interesting AP um, Rolex yeah and I'd also say um, you know it's a mecca for business for watches because um, of the tax-free status. Correct. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that actually, you know, you can quite easily see that a lot of those watches are actually being bought by mainland Chinese, mm -hmm. right? So actually how much of that local population is like such a force to be reckoned with? I don't think it is. You know that um, they, of course you have very knowledgeable collectors you know some of those are our friends but compared to like landmass such as the us or even europe hong kong is tiny you know and mm. in that in that tiny place there are obviously like pockets of wealth but they're also like long said a lot of people that you know struggle you know even to pay the rent right so Local population, I don't think is as big as, you know, other places anyway. And then factor in that, like the local mentality, the culture, that's why. Mm. Mm. 
Well, I've never lived in Hong Kong, so I'll take and I'm also learning here. Also, I mean, I don't know, but I I think what you guys said makes a lot of sense. That's that's very good to know. Um, then the other question is more personal for you guys. What is it? Um, it maybe a twofold. Um, what is your appreciation of the future of watchmaking? Um in the next you know year year two years maybe three years because of the, everything that is going on right now we're, we're seeing uh, a lot of things going going on a, a lot of things happening uh and that being said are you guys gonna take advantage of this new uh newfound economy for watches uh and if so what is your grail what is it that you guys are gonna save up and try to aim for in in the future right now that we're seeing these uh craziness in the in the valuation of watches mm. well a lot of these prices of these watches have now become prohibitive for a large amount of watch collectors and enthusiasts correct which i actually do think there's a, a space therefore for watch brands like yourself which can you know fulfill that desire to still own watches with certain complications i think you know that may be the reason why certain vintage watches or, or brands like harbring you know have garnered more attention you know in, in in recent times um there's such a big gap now between all the pieces that everybody would want you know like fb jean resonance tourbillon fb jean tourbillons you know patek vintage patek all of those now are just so expensive and then there doesn't seem to be you know the entry level selection aside from Rolex, Omega, and those like what the brands that we're accustomed to, they're still producing very traditional kind of watches. You know, you don't have the kind of complications that let's say your brand has. Uh, and I'm not saying that because you're on the show. Um, so it'd be interesting to see, you know, if that actually you know, I think few brands, a few brands, not because every there seems to be at the same time, independent watch brands popping left, right, and center. You know, understanding maybe that there's an opportunity here, but not all of those will survive, Indeed. and not all those those will have the right management uh, to build their brand up and recognize the value of the brand. Um, a lot of those seem to be very product focused, and I think that's okay to start off with, but eventually, the value in the watch brand is in the brand. You know, so no doubt. Uh, so I think over time, maybe there'll be a few more solid brands doing okay. I mean, Atelier Wen was like well positioned uh, before. You know, they they they've had some difficult times, but they they had some experience, and now they seem to be kind of maximizing on that experience. Um, in terms of like personal grails, it's very difficult because for me personally, because I work at the auction house, right? So a lot of these quote unquote grails that everybody sees, I do get to see them and I get, I get to play with them like regularly, I'd say. And then I get to meet collectors that have a lot of the amazing pieces. And I'm very, you know, realistic. I, I can't afford, like I, I just won't buy every single piece and I couldn't do that anyway. Right. So but, you know, for people like, let's say, Jacqueline, you know, her way of experiencing pieces has always been to purchase them, right? 
because she wouldn't have been, you know, especially she started this during COVID. She'd see something, she'd like it, she did the research and then she'd buy it and then maybe she wouldn't like it, she'd sell it. But for me, that's never, I've never had to do that to experience pieces. Um, and therefore, when you do get exposed to pieces so quickly, you think you like something so, so much. After a while, you move on, you move on and move on. Move on to the point where, you know, watches don't really stay in the memory that long. Yeah. And um, things become somewhat of a blur. But a lot, my mind, I do know my own collecting pattern is it has to be rare. That, mm. that, that's a clear kind of common denominator I found. Actually, what you said about the Van Cleef, there was a lot of similarities to how I would think in, in your thinking. It has to be rare. Right. And it doesn't have to be well known rare. Like it doesn't have to be like everybody knows it's rare, you know. Um, because you know, a lot of people think the Nautilus is rare, but <laughs> right. Yeah. But, uh, it just needs to be a very niche and something that I know, and then it has to have the right selling points. Uh, probably I, you know, I still factor in design because it is an aesthetic piece of art, like you said, that you put on your wrist. Um, that is it. Yeah. So, so that's what I think. Yeah. Very interesting. You guys. Next. Do I want to go first? Okay, I'll go first since um, my answer is actually really similar to Dan's. As in, you you kind of see a lot of watches, so they kind of like like the the watch doesn't really stay in your your mind actually. And um, it used to be like a very conscious thing, like where do I go next? What's the direction I'm going? But then now it's kind of like whatever's happening in my life that would trigger me to suddenly want this watch or that watch or how it fits into my lifestyle and stuff. But so in terms of grill, I couldn't even pinpoint what I could always name a bunch of like vintage paddocks, but then you just know in a few months, you're like, do I even really want it? Or just the idea of having it. So I think what I can tell you though, is I can't wait till the day that one, I downsize, so I learned to curate my collection. And then two, I can completely be neutral about the brand because I know to some extent I'm still buying into a lot of the marketing and a lot of the the story behind brands without fully understanding. And a lot of this history with these brands, it's not even related to my background or Asia. So it's like, how is this even affecting me? So I... Uh, it would I want to be like hey I met let's say you I met you and then there was a story there was a relationship I think I want to get to that place where every single piece I could I actually would have a great story behind the piece rather than hey I was traveling and this was cool and then it caught my eye so that's where I want to be eventually yeah, so something before like Jack goes up as you were just saying that answer like I just realized with myself that has definitely changed. I don't know when it changed, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think it, I remember when you said vintage paddock, that's what it is because vintage paddock is expensive. Mm -hmm. And what I've come to realize about myself is that I don't, that feeling of having something expensive on your wrist, just on the price alone, back in the old, might have made me feel good about myself, you know? forget the watch for a minute the fact that also this watch costs this much i'm doing pretty good you know i'm happy with myself i realized i don't need that like 
And I think I would have really, really liked that like a couple of years ago. Oh, you know, wow, look at me, you know, not just the brand, but the, you know, it's expensive. Um, yeah, I don't need that anymore. Yeah, it's really become really just overall, overall watch appreciation. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say. Did that I really sense? like that answer. <laughs> I, I I love that answer. You know why? Because and 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 sorry to to interrupt, but um, one of the things that really click in my head as well is what I'm trying to pursue here at least as a very personal motivation um, is not collecting all the FP journals that there are and meeting Francois Paul and all whatnot. What I saw that I was journeying on, it wasn't his watches, is him. I'm like, I saw myself like, and that's why I decided also to do Mac because I'm like, that is not what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is to, through someone else, through some other brand, try to look and striving for that level of perfection and beauty on different on, on a watch that I understood that nothing will be able to fulfill that sentiment that I had in, in that type of um, journey that I was looking for uh, with anybody else's watch. And that's why I created you know, we created Meg and we created the Meg One and, and the other watch that we're that we're producing because that is truly, at least for me, the definition on I am happy, I am uh content with what I have because it's something that I created. It's uh, a lot of people say you don't really know what it is to have kids until you have your own, even though if you have, you know, nephews or if you have a dog or a cat, like nothing will prepare you on the, on the feeling and sentiment of when you have your own kids. And I, I relate to that in the sense of nothing will prepare me at the moment that I saw the first time that John Power, you know, clock in. Um, it, it was, it was insanity. So I think that, uh, the, the major, um, hole or gap that we're not able to fulfill is understanding what is our motivation into the hobby. What is it that we're looking for? And what is it that is going to really bring us content? Because as you just mentioned, the fact of the money, the, the price point was making you feel special at the moment. But then after you see it and see it and see it, it's like, well, it's very expensive. What, but what is this watch doing for me? Does it make me feel special beyond the price point? Um, and I always joke with this, uh, with my friends and with Tracy, uh, because I tell her, um, it is the same thing as a guy that looks for these 10 out of 10 girlfriend that is absolutely outstanding, gorgeous, hot. Everyone looks at her. Uh, but the girl talks to you like crap and treats you like crap when you get home. And she's like, Hey, you know, I'm kind of hungry. Okay. That's your problem. Like, listen, like, it doesn't matter who you are get the fuck out. <laughs> I prefer to be by myself. And I think that that's a very good interpretation on, on the watches. Like it doesn't really matter if it's, you know, half a million dollar vintage Patek, if I put it on, but it doesn't do anything for me. Why the hell am I going to spend all that money? I can have an amazing worldwide collection for, with that same amount of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think, uh, my, my, I think, I think Jack here has influenced me. You know, in her own journey where she started, you know, it was like, yeah, okay, I get to see that. And then now where she's at, I'm like, yeah, fuck's sake, man. Like, 
I get to see some of those pieces. And I think, yeah, they're really, really nice. I, it just resonates with me a lot more the way Jack collects, actually. Yeah. How do I collect? Well, I think rarity is definitely your thing, right? Like it has to be rare. Yeah, and then obviously you you really value condition, and most of your stuff is vintage, so condition makes it really difficult to find. Um, Please share, share. I want to know. Well. <laughs> Yeah, the design aspect is really, really key for you as well, right? Um, yeah, I think in terms of rarity, like I, I tend to just be drawn towards rare pieces, not because standard pieces aren't appealing. It's just I know that I will have an opportunity to buy one whenever I want, so why prioritize that when you know i'm gonna i have the chance to buy something that i might not get this chance to see again or purchase again down the road so I, obviously i'm gonna take advantage of that um and that plays a key role in when i'm downsizing which i did a lot last year um and and that was like the main question when i asked like what do i have here that I like because I wouldn't have bought it if I didn't like it in the first place that I can easily replace again if I regret my decision. Um, so, and those are the pieces that I do decide to let go when, when I need to, um, in terms of collecting, uh, I agree with everything that those, you know, those two just said for me, some, like the current state of the market for certain pieces, you know that it's just unlikely for you to achieve at this certain moment. So I like, like there's two sides of myself when it comes to collecting. There's one side where I seek out value, where I also say like what you said earlier, Carlos, it's objectively worth more than what it costs. And when I buy it, I'm like, oh, I got a pretty good deal and even though nobody knows what it is, I can appreciate it and I can I can wear it. There's another side where it's it's not objective at all. It's it's pure emotion. Um and it only makes sense to me and it might only make sense to me. For example, um like there are certain pieces that I want. I actually have a list when it comes to specifically vintage paddock, um, that I that I want to 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 have and 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 curate, but the problem is it's very difficult to find them. So what I do is, and I've had a lot of fun doing this, which is um, when independents were 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 coming up and smaller independents that weren't on many people's radars, um, I I reached out and I had the opportunity to create some PS uniques. And obviously, I'm not a very artistic person. So when it came to the design aspect, I would um, very more often than not draw inspiration from the the vintage paddocks that I want onto these watches. Now, it's fair to say, like, is that <laughs> what you're not supposed to do? Fair. Is that like what you want to do? Fair. But it's just what appeals to me. And I think we can all agree that the that you know whoever designed those 
watches back in the days, there's a certain harmony to the case and, and the dials that you might not be able to find today. So I do try to um, bring a certain homage to those pieces onto when I create certain uh, piece uniques. And then when I do get the chance to um, finally like stumble upon the vintage paddock that I'm looking for, and, and this happened recently, and I looked at the one that I created that's like in many senses an homage to the one that I'm really wanting, um, then it, it doesn't make sense for me to have both anymore. Like I know many people would keep both and just because of pure liquidity wise, I can't afford to keep both sometimes. So I would sell the one that I made bespoke and keep the one that I always wanted. And when I, and because this happened recently, people like reached out and asked me like, why did you sell that? Because now the independent brand is very, is quite hot. Um, and it's like, why, why would you sell that? But you see, like, to me, it makes sense. It might not make sense to you, but in my mind, the brain map makes sense. It's every step that it took me to get to the place that I want. And I might regret it later on, but right now it's what makes the most sense to me. So in terms of a grail, I don't think there's like, um, Again, like what Long Long said, we can name all these big vintage references or, or you know. Um, but for me right now, at this very moment, um, and taste obviously is changing all the time. But for right now, like the grail for me is an interesting story, like maybe an interesting ownership or provenance, the acquisition process um, that it takes for me to get it. And how that story ties in with my collecting philosophy. And then ultimately what that watch makes me feel when, when I wear it. Um, it could be the most obscure, no brand, vintage hourglass with um, hourglass watch with like a domed crystal that nobody nobody's going to know about. But if I find it interesting and and it speaks to me in 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 certain ways, I'm 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 gonna get that, and that would be like my grail for for the time being. So that's that's how I'm approaching collecting now, which I agree like is very different from where I started. Um, when I started, it was all the big references. It was like the classic um most collectible pieces and of the most collectible pieces i wanted to find the rarest variant um but now what's happened was in terms of value like i can't i can't wear them out without worrying about potentially damaging it and um so the value of the watches has come become sort of like a hindrance um to me wearing it fully um when I know that I'm gonna be commuting a lot. So 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 now I, I just lean more towards a very niche, more obscure, often vintage watch that nobody's gonna pay any attention to, but it makes me happy and it makes sense to me. So that's, that's like the nice. grail that I'm looking for. Yeah. Very nice. Believe it or not, I do have one uh, that I'm looking for, which is a piece that most people wouldn't care about. Um, and again, very obscure uh, in the vintage realm 
from the 90s. So no, not that all. I can say that because I'm from the 80s. So <laughs> um, the there's this um, before the, you know, they went side, sideways and whatnot. But Quorum is, is a very interesting brand to me because they created the Golden Bridge and that in watchmaking, it is a very significant uh, movement and and the way that they they created the, the movement and fully in-house and yada, yada. Um, there's a variant of that watch, very rare to find, that is a round watch, step lux, and it has from three to nine, the complete Golden Bridge movement, but on... You know the rest of the of the dial is completely closed, so it looks like a regular dress piece, thirty six millimeter, if I can recall, but it has the golden bridge in all its glory right in the middle. So, and that is a watch that is objectively fantastic, but it's not a watch that people are gonna look for in an auction and pay stupid amount of money. That is the watch, uh, for example, and is speaking to me significantly, and I'm looking for. So, you guys haul at your boy if you guys see one of those watches going around, especially in, in yellow gold. But that is that is into you know to to recap into the idea of finding things that are very cool, objectively fantastic uh, on the watchmaking side, uh, but rare enough that if I put it on and I go into the subway, people are not gonna look at me. Yeah. That's great. Um any other questions? How how are we with time? We are now. Uh this would be a good time to round that part up and then move into quick fire. Fantastic. All right. So quick questions, short answers, first thing that pops up in your head. Okay, favorite city and why? New York City. Uh <laughs> No bullshit, straight mm -hmm. up, and the energy. There is something that I cannot describe. It's just the energy of the city, the culture, architecture, food, everything. Okay, this one you probably have to think about. One place uh, and one dish that everyone needs to try when visiting New York. One place and one dish that everyone needs to try. So I will say Brooklyn, Williamsburg. It is a place that a lot of people, when they come and visit, they don't really know about and they don't understand how different Brooklyn makes the experience of being in New York uh, is versus just visiting Manhattan, the city. Uh, it's, it's like two different world, worlds. Like it's, it's the same as going to Queens, same as going to the Bronx. Uh, but yeah, you guys need to come and visit Williamsburg. It is my home. I love it. I love Brooklyn. Very proud of being here. Uh, and number two, dish. Come on. Coming to New York and not trying New York pizza, it will be a crime. You should get expelled. Um, I think that uh, out of that, on the dish side, it will be New York pizza, but more, moreover, more especially the ones on Williamsburg, which is Lindustry, one of my absolute favorite, the burrata slice with some hot honey on top. Mm. <laughs> Perfection. You need to have your own food show the way you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. One piece of business advice. Woof um let me see so many to pick from 
But I think that the most important thing that I'm going to say is follow your passion. No, no, forget that. Um, that's, by the way, that's the stupidest shit that anyone can tell you about <laughs> business. Um, be number one, be truly self-aware and brutally, very brutally honest with yourself in your own business. Because the number one thing that I that I've been able to pick up in, in please feel free to disagree with me. Uh, but I think that the number one thing that I that I've been able to pinpoint that is the cancer of businesses, entrepreneurs, or anyone involved into any kind of um endeavor that is trying to, to be a business, uh, is ego and not being self-aware and not understanding when is the right time to cut things mm -hmm. and when is the right time to progress and to grow. A company that grows too fast is more dangerous than the one that doesn't grow. The company that downsizes too fast is also a danger. So everything that you do needs to be measured. Data is your friend. And just be brutally honest, man, because there's no ego in business. Some days you're here, some other days you're here. So I think that humility, being uh, ego, uh, mm -hmm. ego free, and just trying to see things in a very cold, uh, direct way is the best way for you to be successful. Obviously, adding up working like a horse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Hardest time in your life. Oh, well. I do have several, um, mm -hmm. but I, I'm going to say that one of the hardest time in my life is a lot of, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I'm very open about it, about anything in life. You long, long know very well. Mm -hmm. um, I've been broke a couple of times in my life. I've been on the top of my game, uh, driving Ferraris and Lamborghinis, and I've been absolutely dead broke, like negative on my bank account a couple of mm -hmm. times. Uh, and those times happened in the worst time ever because it was recently when I, you know, I became an immigrant when I moved to the States. I was trying to figure it out myself and trying to find out what is it that I was going to do. Um, and, and being without any kind of connections, without any kind of, uh, you know, potential of doing anything uh, into your near future and, and having only the support of your family in the sense of moral support and whatnot, but you try not to abuse that potential financial support, that is very hard because you need to be, uh, there, there's, there are some, you know, different ways of seeing this, but I'm very stubborn. Once I decide that I'm going to do something in the way that I'm going to do it, that's the way that it's going to happen no matter what. So that was hard because it's difficult to be like that with that type of mentality when you actually need the help, when you could actually yeah. take the money that people are putting on your table and you say, no, this is not me. I'm not going to do that. Okay, then suffer, you stupid ass. Um, and that's what, you know, it was, it was difficult for me, but you know what? I wouldn't change it for, for anything in life because that was yeah. the best teacher, yeah. uh, hurt, defeat, um, being punched in the face are the best teachers that you're going to have in your life. Mm. One thing you are most grateful for currently. The people that I have around me. 
the people mm-hmm. that I decide to call family because your friends are the family that you choose. And mm-hmm. um, my family, my friends, my significant other, uh, mm-hmm. my dog, like those are yeah. the things, the people, the energy that it makes me mm-hmm. wake up every day and go and hustle, try to mm-hmm. take a bite out of the world. And that's mm-hmm. what... I'm going to be the most grateful today, tomorrow, and forever. Can I say something? Um, Yesterday, while I was um, coming out of class and and then went to the subway and coming out of the subway, actually, um, I was walking in uh, MIT campus. And then I just heard, I wasn't eavesdropping like on purpose, but you know, people talk loudly and then you just hear them in public. I just heard these two research assistants walking behind me and they were talking about the study of um social life expectancy and um can't remember how they paraphrased it but they said you know statistically it's statistically shown and studies have shown this that um your life expectancy is better calculated you would think via health conditions But new studies have shown that it's really the health of your social circle and who you surround yourself with. So doctors even apparently now suggest like you're feeling you're feeling terrible, maybe. But there's nothing wrong with you physically, but mentally, like you should look at who you're spending time with. And it's that is effect having a large effect on your overall health and life expectancy, which I when I was walking, I, I wanted to like turn around and be like, really? Like, where's the peer review? Like, what's the source of this peer review? But since I was walking in MIT, I'll take their word for it. Um, <laughs> it's it's I, fascinating. I lo- I love that because uh, we have been hearing this uh, saying from millennia that it says uh, you are the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with. Mm-hmm. And that couldn't be more accurate. I, I wholeheartedly believe that that is uh, a hard truth about life. And that is not that is not just going to be grooming uh, who you are and how you behave and what you wear and where you go, but it's going to be affecting you in such a deeper level than what people may think on the personal uh, stake and your uh, potential uh, emotional happiness and intelligence that that's why EQ for me is as valuable nowadays and more valuable than ever than IQ you can have an IQ of 147 but if your EQ is two then good luck with that buddy you're gonna suffer mm. okay morning or night morning morning or uh, night, uh, you guys can see is uh 9.48 in the morning, and I'm a little bit of a crackhead in the morning. At night, I'm not a night person. Uh, yeah. After 10, 10.30 is my bedtime. I'm on slippers like an old man, taking tea. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, last question. Uh, cutest thing your dog does? Oh, Chuck. Um, his name is Chuck. He's 11 years old, a white schnauzer. And um, the cutest thing that he does is that he feels when I'm extremely stressed Mm -hmm. and he will come and hug me. 
Like he will hug me, put his uh, entire body on top of me and kind of like give me a hug. And there's nothing more comforting than that to me. And right now that he's not with me right now because he's uh, spending time with my parents in Puerto Rico because, mm -hmm. because of all my traveling, uh, that that's one of the things that I miss the most about him. That's so cute. Yeah. All right. Uh, that ends our episode for today. Thank you, Carlos. I hope you enjoyed that. My absolute pleasure. Uh, I think that this is something that you guys should uh, foment to be doing in person with a nice couple of bottles of wine or champagne for that matter, uh, because this was one of the easiest chills, most organic conversation that I ever had in a in an interview. And I thank you guys for that because it made my day better. Yay, thank you. Okay, so guys, the final prototype is out. Um, I know this. Oh, I, I forgot to add this earlier on. I know the prototype, the accuracy of this prototype is already more accurate than a lot of the watches in the market, actually. Yes, this I forgot to mention. Yeah. So um, yeah, DM me, DM um, Carlos as well. Um, I know you're very busy, but I'm sure Carlos will reply you guys if you're not a dick um, to find out more. <laughs> But um, visit the website, visit the Instagram. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And as always, you can find Jack, me and Dan on our IG page or at the waiting list podcast. And we will see you on the next one. Bye bye. Thank bye -bye. you. Bye bye. Pleasure. As always, thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.